0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
2: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm involved in in an organisation that builds schools in Africa. And last summer, I went out to see various of these schools. On the last day I was there, we drove for three hours... ...and we pitched up in the middle of nowhere. There was a school there. Twelve parents who formed the committee of this school met me. They each described themselves as a peasant. This is not some, a description you hear very often. They had, between them, built the school. They had dug the well that provided the water... And they were now trying to lay on electricity to the school. I said, well, electricity is really going to change this place, isn't it? And the chairman of the committee said, yes, we can get the internet. That's the future, you know. Now, against that sort of blind optimism, we have to posit tonight's motion, which is that the internet is a failed utopia. We're going to hear, as you can see, four speakers... It reminds me a little bit of that polemic published in 1949, The God That Failed, by disillusioned ex-communists, who realized that communism didn't work. We're going to hear two people argue that the internet is a failed utopia, and two who argue against. In 1995, there were about apparently 1% of us who were on the internet, and now uh, it's something getting towards 50% of the world population. About 3 billion people. However, I got those figures from the internet this morning <laughs> and they are therefore almost certainly wrong uh, and possibly a cover for some sort of uh, virus being installed or some porn site or some piece of commerce. I don't know. But it is a phenomenon of our time. Of course, that's why you're all here, all Very large preponderance of geeks by the look of things. Uh, And I have really few doubts about what your prejudices are. But before we hear the argument, can I ask for a show of hands? Who agrees that the Internet is a failed utopia? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. who thinks it's not a failed utopia... Some of you will be able to... There's an overwhelming majority against the motion and you are free to say that you don't know. Who doesn't know? Oh, quite a few people ready to be persuaded one way or the other. So we will take a show of hands again at the end of the debate and see whether anyone has paid the slightest attention to anything that our speakers uh, has said. We're going to hear first, proposing the motion, Andrew Keane. Andrew is going to speak for... Each of the, these four speakers are going to speak for, for, for about five minutes from the podium here. So Andrew, as you know, is the kind of antichrist of Silicon Valley, and he is going to make the case for the motion first, and then we'll hear the first speech against the motion. So Andrew, would you like to take the podium there?
3: got my entireness, so I can trust Jeremy. I oh, think we'll be the judge of that, matey.
0: <laughs>
3: Off you go. Okay, so let's be clear about this debate, because I think it's really important. This is not a debate about whether the Internet is a failure. It clearly isn't a failure. That's self-evident. We're all in it, we're addicted to it, we love it, we hate it. I love it and I hate it. Most people accept that it has strengths and weaknesses. That's not the issue that we're discussing, arguing about tonight. The question is whether the internet is a failed utopia. What that means is, has the internet failed in the context of the utopian dreams of many of its founders? Now I'm gonna read you out the most articulate and well-known of those visions. Of the utopians, John Perry Barlow's vision, uh, his his uh, cyberspace declaration of independence. He wrote, uh, "This was in the mid 90s. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giant of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome amongst us." You have no sovereignty where we gather. Now, the point of that utopian position, as Barlow lays out, and so many other pioneers of the Internet, is that it would be a different place, a profoundly different place. The guy who first thought up the idea of the Internet, Vannevar Bush, saw it as a place of creative abundance. J.C.R. Lickliter, the great visionary from MIT, the guy who pushed the idea forward. He thought that what he called the symbiosis of man and machine or man and algorithm would create a higher consciousness. Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the World Wide Web, believed that the internet would be a place without boundaries. Kevin Kelly, one of the most influential journalists and thinkers in Silicon Valley, talked about there being new rules for the new economy a flattened economy, a place where every entrepreneur would have the same opportunity, where the old hierarchies, the old biases of capitalism, the distinction between rich and poor would be swept away by digital. So digital was supposed to be different. Digital was supposed to be reinventing the world, perhaps in the way that Jeremy described the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, that doesn't mean that the Internet is Bolshevism or communism. It isn't. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, has the Internet lived up to that? And I would argue very strongly that it hasn't. I would argue that the history of the Internet, and it's been more than 50 years, since, almost 50 years since we had computer to computer, computer to communication, has actually resulted in more of the old world. You are not welcome amongst us, Barlow says, but actually you are because the old rules of power, the old rules of inequality, the old rules which have created the new monopolists like Google and Facebook and Amazon, who we talked about today. The internet has not done away with national boundaries. We see the appearance more and more, for better or worse, and I certainly don't celebrate this, of an American internet, a Russian internet, a Chinese internet an Iranian internet, and perhaps indeed eventually, given all the stuff over antitrust, a European internet. It hasn't changed the basic laws of economics, of sociology, of economics, of business. Above all else, it hasn't changed our consciousness. The great utopian uh, optimist Licklider believed that this symbiosis of algorithm and man would create a more generous human being, a more universal one, one who was more sympathetic. I would strongly argue that you switch on your internet and you look at the the elements of narcissism, of hatred, vindictiveness against women, sexism, the kind of thing which pervades the internet that undoubtedly shows that the internet is a failed utopia. It hasn't resulted in the reinvention of the human condition, or of economics, or of social relations. It doesn't make us worse. We're not arguing about that. It hasn't corrupted us. We were already corrupt. We are the same today as we've always been. The Internet, therefore, is a failed utopia. Thank you.
2: Now we're going to hear the first speaker against the motion, uh, Somehow we've heard earlier, Beth Novick, former uh, founder of the White House Open Government Initiative and author of the forthcoming book, Smart Citizens, Smarter State. Beth.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Well, given the show of hands, perhaps I should stop before I've started. But let me put to you today that you must vote against this proposition for three reasons. First... Utopia is not a place, but is a path towards greater good. As Sir Thomas More conceived of it 500 years ago, it was a non-place, a no-place. Hence, it is nonsensical to think of the Internet as a destination at which we have failed to arrive. Rather, it is a set of ideals. It is an aspiration to guide us. It is the yellow brick road, not the Emerald City. My esteemed opponent is correct to point out that the internet, and as he's spoken today and in his writings, that the internet can be used for frivolous and narcissistic ends, for posting selfies on Instagram, for spreading malicious information and propaganda a la Russian trolls, and for amassing of great wealth and power. But the internet did not create narcissism, nor did it spawn economic inequality. There were robber barons long before there were venture capitalists and internet entrepreneurs, and there are rapacious capitalists with runaway salaries in banking, in healthcare, and in insurance, and in other sectors. In fact, of the ten companies that have been studied with the largest CEO to worker pay disparity, not a single one of them is an internet company. As distasteful as West Coast boosterism can be, and it can be, the roots of economic inequality in our society are planted firmly in Wall Street, not in Silicon Valley. Hence, the Internet will be what we make of it. To suggest otherwise, to suggest, as Thoreau Thoreau said, that we will become the tools of our tools, is to deprive us of human agency and autonomy and to abdicate responsibility for regulating technology appropriately for the greater good. Second, even if we do conceive of the Internet as a place, it is much too early in its evolution to deem it a success or a failure or a failed utopia. The internet allows us to connect with each other, with individuals, with other individuals, and increasingly things are beginning to become linked with other things, creating this vast web of connections that, if we harvest it, could make us smarter and better off. The emerging network of data, of people, and things, it simulates the neural networks of our own brain. It has the same kinds of patterns. And as with our brain, to date, we have only used 15% of the capacity that we have available to us. Similarly, 150 years ago, Dickens wrote about London's smog-choked air with its flakes of soot as big as full-grown snowflakes. But today, we would not call the Industrial Revolution a failure. I think there are few people in the UK who would turn back the clock, reversing untold gains in economic and personal well-being. And just as important, we would also not reverse the gains that we have made, the strides that we have made in response, with the legal protections that we have put in place to bend those technologies to the moral arc of history. The web has only just turned 25, and we are only just at the beginning. Third, and finally, the internet is only a tool. The real utopian ideal for which we are striving is the openness that the net makes possible when we use it well. That is, openness of knowledge and openness of democracy itself. The Internet is helping us to create a greater corpus of human knowledge and make it available in real time to more people than ever before. Open knowledge isn't merely an incidental fact of the Internet. It is the central reality. A hundred million man-hours of effort that have gone into Wikipedia. Two million contributors to OpenStreetMap. Most recently, 2,400 of whom have mapped the roadblocks and the essential sites for relief in the hospitals and the schools in Nepal in order to enable relief to be delivered faster. It's thousands of volunteers following their passions to transcribe and digitize the works of Jeremy Bentham up the street at UCL. Of course, there are some things that still remain too hidden and too opaque. But the internet itself is not the problem, it has inherent in it the tools that give us the solution for speaking truth to power. My Society, a fabulous UK NGO, started 10 years ago to create the website They Work For You, to show everyone for free online the voting record, the parliamentary statements and uh, and the public appearances of any MP. And now the UK NGO Open Corporates is doing the same thing to show every company who owns them and who they own and to make it transparent. Finally, the Internet is a tool to begin to open up our democracy and to begin to solve problems together in new ways. It's allowing us, as we discussed earlier in the new panel, to give voice to the voiceless. Yes, there are still old arbiters of quality uh, who are controlling, are controlling gatekeepers, but we have new voices emerging online and in social media, new and experimental and innovative voices emerging among the old media. Emperor Franz Josef wanted to forbid the use of the typewriter in the Habsburg Palace because he didn't want change. What was the change that resulted? It was the typewriter. Women in the, excuse me, what was the change that resulted from the typewriter? It was women in the workforce. Marginalized groups know which way the wind is blowing and they're putting up their sails. So let me just close with the last few seconds that I have to make one last point, which is the internet is giving people more than voice. It is giving us the tools to take action together. Thousands of poor people die every day. In fact, a 1,000 people have died just this evening from tuberculosis in India. Yet in the last 40 years, there have been no advances in tuberculosis treatments, until a few thousand students, a couple of scientists, and some government officials got together in the Open Source Drug Discovery Project to mine all the literature about tuberculosis using the net to work across India. And now, just this year, they have started clinical trials on the first new tuberculosis drug in over 40 years. The net is connecting us to one another, not the utopia, but maybe we should call it the connectopia. It's enabling people to do greater good together. So in conclusion, you must vote against this motion. The internet is not a path, is not a place, but a path. It's too early in its evolution to declare it a success or a failure, and it is a tool enabling the greater opening of access to knowledge, the creation of knowledge, and opening of democracy itself. Thank you.
2: Right, we'll hear now our second speaker for the motion. It's Frank Pasquale, who's a professor at uh, the University of Maryland and is the author of Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information. He's not a fan.
4: Thanks so much, Jeremy, and I'm going to try to take the opportunity tonight to build on your connection to the uh, work, The God That Failed, Critiques of Revolutions. I think that all too often the boosters of the internet have really taken on a revolutionary discourse, revolutionary parlance, and they've overpromised and they've underdelivered. delivered um, In the words of one of their own, uh, Peter Thiel, the venture capitalist, we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters. And I want to tell the story, building on some of Andrew Keene's excellent points earlier, of a promise of liberty, equality, and solidarity from the Internet that has resulted quite often in the opposite of all three things. First of all, let's talk about liberty, and let's build on Andrew's point about John Perry Barlow and the Declaration of Independence from Cyberspace. Unfortunately, all too many people took that document too seriously, and the promises of other folks on the Internet, and thought they had found a space that was ungovernable, unaccountable to law enforcement, to spies, to other people who might be trying to do them harm. What activists in China, Egypt, Iran found was that just as the internet could be used to connect them, to empower them politically, it could just as easily be used to track them and to track them down and put them in prison. And we have to acknowledge that essentially we can't go forward simply thinking of the internet as a place of human freedom, of human emancipation, when there have already been so many instances of it being turned against the very people who turned to it with hopes and dreams. Secondly, we had the big promise of equality. We heard from so many folks, ranging even from economists at Berkeley and Stanford, that the Internet was leveling the playing field. Anybody, a couple of people with uh, two computers in a garage could come in, knock off Google, knock off Microsoft, knock off any of the big players. I think what we're finding, though, increasingly is that the same type of hierarchies that once characterized the media landscape, say in the 50s, 60s, 70s with large broadcasters or later on with large cable companies, those are again recongealing. And it's really a false hope and an unfortunate hope to give to people that suddenly they can just level the playing field. Also you look at Astra Taylor's book, The People's Platform, she tells the story of artist after artist, other folks who are having a very difficult time on the internet nowadays. We really need to level this playing field but the only way we can do so is if we resist the utopian rhetoric that says, oh, the market will take care of it all, or these kind of companies are, all have our best interests at heart, et cetera, who are at the heart of the internet. The third sort of revolutionary promise back from the French Revolution was this idea of solidarity, fraternity. And we saw that too in many positive manifestations in things like social networks and Twitter and others. But I'm sure you've all had the experience of suddenly learning a bit too much about your relatives' political views on Facebook. Having to filter out a few too many frivolous or uh, just bizarre posts from those that you know. Having anxiety about whether a certain LinkedIn friendship may not reflect on you terribly well with your employer. And as time has gone on, what first initially seemed like this emancipatory space for us to connect and reconnect and create new friendships has suddenly become a sphere of surveillance, a sphere of showing off. Have I made my picture look good enough? And I think the darkest manifestation of this too is when we think about who controls all this data, particularly in the light of the Facebook emotional manipulation experiments that was exposed this last summer. It's very troubling to know that folks in one very concentrated part of the earth, Silicon Valley, might be taking literally hundreds of thousands of profiles and potentially making some people sadder than they want to be and some people happier than they are presently. This, I think, talks, leads to the fundamental issue here, which is one of power, And we really have to think about whose purposes and whose interests the utopian rhetoric that is so characteristic of internet commentators is serving. I think fundamentally what we have to recognize is that the promises of liberty, of getting beyond government, beyond surveillance, beyond big business, the promises of equality, that you could be your own boss and you could make your own way online, the promises of solidarity, that you could simply make all these new friendships and you wouldn't have to worry about what people thought of you in light of them. All of these have basically failed. And I think that the main message you're sending if you vote for this motion is to say, Internet, big companies, big firms that control it, do better. You've promised us the world, but you've delivered far less than that. Thank you.
2: Thank you Frank. Uh, The final speaker before we, you're all going to be free to put any question you like to any of them in a moment or two, but first of all we're going to hear the second speaker against the motion, who is Peter Barron, uh, who I must declare an interest, I worked with him years ago, he left the BBC and now manages to eke out an existence working for Google, Um, (laughs) President of Communications and Public Affairs for half the world in the way of these American corporations. Um, So, Peter, off you go. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to zoom way
1: out, perhaps a 1,000 years or or 2,000 years. Um, Andrew and Frank, for the purposes of this discussion, represent the Roman civilisation. Jeremy is Shakespeare, and Beth and I are the Beatles and Bob Dylan. So now, where does the Internet sit in that historical sweep? What will the world say when it looks back in a thousand years' time? Will it say, oh, yes, the the Internet, that failed utopia? I I really don't think that is going to be the case. But before I explain why, let's just pick up on the word utopia. I had the chance to ask Vint Cerf, one of the founding fathers of of the Internet and now working at, at Google, what he thought of tonight's motion. And here is a repeatable part of what he said. (laughs) Those of us who pioneered this system were under no misconceptions that it is or was or will be a perfect utopia. But the experience with the Internet has shown its vast potential for economic development and benefit for all societies. So great optimism, yes. A rose garden, no. Now, I think as a society, we are extremely good at adapting to change, but I don't think we're so good at appreciating change. It's a bit like teenage kids who are growing very fast but don't realise they're, they're growing. So I started at Newsnight in 1990, just a few months after, after Jeremy. There was no email. We literally used to send letters. We would say, Dear Sir, would you like to do an interview with Jeremy Paxman? A week letter, later, a letter would come back saying, No, thank you. LAUGHTER we, we had a mobile phone. We had one, just one mobile phone, a Motorola 4500X. It was about the size and weight of a car battery. And if you wanted to use it, you had to send a, me- a, a letter in writing to explain why you wanted to use the office's only mobile phone. <laughs> the battery lasted for about an hour. And if you wanted to search for an old story, uh, you would walk down the corridor to a place called News Information... Uh, you would go up to a person behind the desk and you'd say, can I have some articles about Shoreditch? They would open up a manila envelope which had yellowing, curled cut, uh, newspaper cuttings, which may or may not contain the article that you had in mind. That was only 25 years ago. So it's a wonderful, wonder that Newsnight ever went out at all. So today we all have a mobile phone, a smartphone, actually a supercomputer. It gives you access to all the world's information. You can speak to it. It can instantly translate what you say into 90 la- different languages. It allows you to gather, record, create content, and it allows you to disseminate that content for free to a global audience of billions of people. As Tim Berners-Lee famously typed at the Olympic ceremony in 2012, this is for everyone. More than 2 billion people now have this access. Now, what does that access do? Well, as we've, as we've heard, it enabled Jamal Edwards, who got a video camera for his 14th birthday, to build his own music business empire and discover Ed Sheeran and Ellie Goulding along the way. It enabled entrepreneur Julie Dean to build Cambridge Satchel Company, uh, now a a very, very successful global business, from her kitchen table with £600. It enabled Steve Mahan, a blind man, to pick up a Mexican takeaway in a driverless car. I wonder what Steve would make of tonight's motion. Of course, Andrew doesn't like all this. He, He harks back to a time when a privileged elite, the professionals rather than the amateurs, had exclusive access to information and the ability to disseminate it. When a tiny minority decided what was best for all of us. And he likens the success stories of people like Jamal to winning the lottery. But that completely misses the point. Of course only a small minority of people will make it to the top in any endeavor. But the Internet gives everyone the equality of opportunity to have a go. What is the collective noun for hundreds of millions of people expressing themselves online? Possibly a utopia of self-expression. And Frank complains about the amount of data that web companies use. Most of the data we collect is 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 used to provide and improve our services. For example, we store hundreds of billions of emails because hundreds of millions of people around the world want unlimited email storage. In fact, the core of our business, our our Google search ads, actually require very little personal information. If you type flowers into Google search, the chances are you're looking for flowers. It doesn't take a lot of data to work that out. But you are right that advertising pays for all of this. And we're very proud of that. It means it's free and everybody gets the same service. The president of the United States and the 10-year-old boy in India they get the same service. And by the way, that 10-year-old boy in India today has access to more information than the President of the United States had just 20 years ago. And of course, there are issues in all of this. The internet reflects the world, and the world can be an ugly place. But here's a thought. Imagine if you could see the whole world in Shakespeare's time, way uglier than the world today. The fact is that despite all the challenges, the world continues to get better. Just look at Hans Rosling's ignorance test. Throughout history, technology has made the world better. So let's get things into perspective when voting tonight. Of course the internet brings issues and challenges. Of course companies like Google should be scrutinised and challenged. But if you believe, as Beth and I do, that the benefits of the internet have brought massively, incontrovertibly, uh, more benefits than they have uh, disbenefits, then you must vote down the motion. Thank you.
2: Uh, right, let's talk about some of these things up, uh, up here before we um, throw it open. Um, your book, Andrew, is called The Internet is Not the Answer. What's the question?
3: <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before. Uh, Come on. The question is what, what, what should the operator, and I use this term carefully given technology here, what, 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 what kind of operating system do we want for the 21st century? and I conclude in the book that at the moment the internet is not the answer. it has to be i'm not you know i 'm not a roman i don 't want to go back uh, to Rome, certainly, or even the Beatles. Um, but at the moment, the internet is only compounding when we come to that question as an operating system. It's only compounding more, more economic inequality, less opportunity. Uh, So at the moment, it's not the answer to our core problems. Three problems, surveillance, inequality and unemployment. It's actually adding to all those.
2: Hasn't any big industrial innovation, Frank, hasn't any big industrial innovation been a disruptor and caused unemployment? I mean... You guys begin to sound a bit like Thomas
4: Hardy complaining about threshing machines. <laughs> right, you do. Well, I have to say, I think there are a lot of valuable lessons to learn from the Industrial Revolution here. I mean, certainly we had a great transformation in the terms of employment, but we didn't need to have decade upon decade of child laborers. That was not intrinsic to the operating system of the Industrial Revolution. I also feel that when I hear about all the glories of the free content model, it reminds me of two turkeys in a barn talking to each other and saying wow, this place is great. We get free housing and free food each day. You know, of course, day by day for these turkeys, it's great. But then, in the end, Thanksgiving comes. And I think very similarly, we've seen with the Snowden revelations, other revelations of the use of Internet data gathering, it's perfectly great and helpful to you until the day it isn't. Peter, I mean, Google's not a charity, self-evidently,
2: and yet you say you're proud of it. It's It's just a business like any other, isn't it? It's not a business like any other. I mean, if you look at the, the way that we've developed
1: the business over the years, um, we've tried to fix the problem first and worry about the revenue second. So even if you look at search, search existed this a is long just time. This bullshit.
2: It's You wouldn't exist well, if
1: you weren't making a profit. Well, look, at the, look at the principles that, that Larry Page <laughs> applies. Look at big problems out in the world, whether it's searching the, the, the web or whether it's building driverless cars. Don't worry too much about the business model at the, at the beginning. Uh, But if you can build services and tools that are extremely useful and are taken up by billions of people around the world, revenue is going to follow.
3: I think what Peter is articulating is is this great conceit of Silicon Valley that you can be wealthy and good at the same time and you can only be one or the other. Where is the evidence that you can only be one or the other? Google, Facebook. Do you think it's evil, Google? No, but again, you see, you're falling into this same trap. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying Google or Facebook, they're no different from any other large corporation. Here's the argument we're having. Peter is saying that Google is a different kind of corporation. I am saying not that Google is evil, but that Google is no different from any other corporation and uses market speak and PR to pursue its own interests. It's extremely profitable. It's run by very smart people, but it's not intrinsically different from any large pharma company right. or yeah. agro company or media company. You haven't changed any of the rules of business, people.
0: Well, let's be clear, and Andrew, this is where we agree in that... We all agree there are problems with these big companies. There are problems of economic inequality. But to lump, to say that the whole Internet is Silicon Valley and is large companies really misses the boat, when in fact what we're seeing is in study after study by McKinsey, by BCG, is that when small and medium-sized enterprises use the Internet, they realize a real bonus. It's the jobs are coming not from the Googles of the world, with all deference to my uh, uh, debate (coughs) partner here, but they're coming from small and medium-sized businesses. They're coming from the little guys who is taking advantage of the Internet to do new things, to innovate in the world, and to do things that were not possible before. So it's one thing to take issue with the boosterism of Silicon Valley. It's a, one thing to take issue with the economic inequality that's rampant in our society. But to lay the blame at the doorstep of the Internet, I think, is really missing the boat here. When I, I, mean,
4: I, I do have to say, though, my problem, though, is that I do think that is a very uh, important, smart distinction to draw between the Internet as a whole and large companies. But the problem becomes that for some of these companies, their very business model involves trying to make them the portal for the whole internet. So if you look, for example, at Mark Zuckerberg's initiative in India, internet.org, which is to get zero rating for certain apps via the sort of free internet via Facebook, that to me is very problematic, and a lot of folks in India actually are protesting it as a new form of colonization.
1: Yeah, uh, we're not going to talk, talk for Facebook, but uh, we certainly <laughs> differ from Facebook in, this, in the sense that we, we are favoring a, a, an open model. And, and, and open. Right
3: throughout our, our business, what we try to do is give as many people as possible access to our, our platforms and services. Yeah, but Peter, in all fairness, you do that because that's your business model. You're not doing it altruistically. You're doing it because your business model is based on selling advertising. You're not, you're, your business model is not based on bringing information to the world. Facebook's bi- business model is not based on connecting people up. It's, it's selling advertising. So that's the conceit. That you are arguing, and many others in Silicon Valley, that you are doing good, and you're just doing business.
1: Well, we can agree. We can agree that we are, that we are a business, and that we make money, and we've been lucky enough to make uh, large sums of money. But we believe that what we're trying to do, we believe that information and free flows of information is simply a good thing, and is good for society and economies around the world. I think that has been demonstrably proven. Now, People like and want to use our services, and those services are, are free.
3: Uh, a, are they free? They Frank just said that when you use them, you get watched all the time. Is that really free? Well, as I say,
1: if you're, if, if you're, searching, if you're searching for inf- information, there's not a huge amount of data going on there. You, if, if you're looking for flowers, you, you, you get flowers. But if, for example, uh, here I am in Shoreditch today. I've, I've got location uh, switched on on my phone. Uh, If I don't want to have that switched on my phone, I'm perfectly at liberty to to switch it off. So I I certainly accept that we've got a responsibility, we and other companies have got a responsibility to uh, be very transparent with users and give the users control so that they can make uh, informed choices about the data that they use. But they can can choose to opt out of of various services, they can choose not to receive targeted advertising, etc.
2: But it is almost impossible to get information unpolluted by advertising on Google, isn't it?
1: I mean, Alan Rusbridger made this point earlier. Uh, I think right at the very, very f- first session, he said, "Wouldn't it be good to have an alternative Google, which didn't have any commerce uh, associated with it at all?" That's a, that might be a very interesting business model, and of course, you could you could charge for that, and could look at someone who, good, who tries that. Adver- advertising right. funds all the free services that, that we provide. But does it does that mean you can you can you can find? You cannot find information that is pure and accurate on the web. Of course it doesn't. All the world's information can be accessed using our services. That service and many other services are funded by advertisers. Look, and I think we're also
0: we're also getting... Just before we get too distracted into making this a debate about pro or con Google, the point is that a lot of these platforms, even those that, yes, are controlled by gatekeepers who run and own the platform are enabling us to express ourselves, to create new kinds of creative expression, to to do things in new ways that we've been able to do before. It's true that government is behind we'd have regulations we have yet to make, we have to, Frank talks a lot about this and is very prescient and he's talking about the ways that we need to actually have government catch up to what the technology can do, but that doesn't mean we should turn the clock back on the technology which in itself contains the tools to allow us to do great good in the world, including to mine new sources of data to solve problems and to crowdsource information together, to work together to collaborate in new ways, to express ourselves and do lots of great things.
2: Right, let's throw it open to the floor. If any of you if uh, you wish to uh, raise a point or take one of the speakers to task, however rude you may be, you go ahead. We'll get a microphone to you down here. And up in the gallery, there are two uh, standing microphones, so you'll have to... If you want to make a point, just go to one of the microphones, and I'll see if I can say... Let's have a microphone to... Yeah, there Well done.
3: Uh, yeah, thank you for um, uh, you know, the debate. But uh, it seems to me that we are... Um, we're actually uh, forgetting something and not touching on something, which is you know capitalism and the internet. And actually, it seems that we're talking about kind of exponential capitalism uh, that is allowed by the internet, and that you know businesses, which job is to make profit, like Google, are actually going to exploit to its maximum. But we we're, we're failing to see is actually that maybe the internet will allow us as a platform to reveal that and that extremism and there might be a counterculture and a counter movement that results out of it. And you're starting to see some of these things happening already with you know civic uh, you know civic use of the internet and collaborative effort, you know, for the public to actually do something that is other than profit, okay. which was not allowed uh, before uh, the profit. Wonderful.
0: Take, take a look for example at OpenStreetMap. Google thought it had dominated the maps game and then along comes a civic nonprofit Free project called OpenStreetMap that has essentially eaten Google for lunch on this topic. What we're seeing is exactly the, idea, the, the 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 notion that we can. It is allowing us to speak truth to power. So take Open Corporates, which is now hoovering up the entire wo- government databases from around the world to allow us to see who the companies are of the world, who owns them, who they own, what their relationships are to each other so that we can see that web of capitalism and we can see the web of corruption where it exists. It's inherent in the tools to allow us to hopefully combat exactly the same ills which are, the, which are endemic in our society, not only in, inherent to Silicon Valley or can to the Internet.
4: And can can I, very quickly, I, yeah, go on. Very quickly, though, I, I guess my response would be I absolutely think there's great civic tech out there, but we have to always be aware that a lot of times the sampling and the data you get it from this civic tech is reflecting the interests of one part of society. So, for example, there was a, a pothole app that tried to alert city authorities. I think it was called Bump, where potholes were and problems with the roads. It turned out that the smartphone users that used this app were all concentrated in the most affluent parts of the city. And so the problem becomes that a lot of times... Even when the civic tech is promising uh, equality and help to everyone, it actually is only benefiting or primarily benefits segments of society that have already benefited a lot from capitalism. And your, yeah.
3: and your argument, your, your
4: question is a really good
3: one, and, and, and it's manifested most clearly now in the utopianism of The the sharing economy, or the so called sharing economy, which in reality is the selfish economy. People like Jeremy Rifkin claim that the sharing economy represents some sort of post capitalism. There are all these books talking about how sharing changes everything. But when we look at how it's being implemented, and this is the operating system for 21st century capitalism, this so-called sharing economy, which means no one has any job security. Everyone's working these part-time jobs. We're all becoming 1099 employees. No one has any worker rights anymore. You have Uber valued at $50 billion, the most rapacious internet company imaginable you have airbnb valued at 20 billion so there's nothing post-capitalist about it and it's increasingly hard to separate capitalism or 21st century network capitalism and the internet they're the same thing
4: and i know people that have actually tried to develop their own cooperatives to compete with uber they've had a terrible time uber so okay let's there's a, you've
2: got a hand up you had your hand up in the back you've got the microphone now
1: yes hello um, uh... A question for Peter. Um, I think we're all really interested in what Google is going to do with all that information that they have on us. Um, I mean, just endless, endless banks of it. Are you planning to sell it? Um, you know, what's going what's to happen to it? But look. And this is a misconception about I- information. It, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, sim- simplistic thing to say that we, have a huge, we obviously have a deal with huge amounts of, of data, but it, it, it gets translated into the idea that we, we want to use that data or, or sell that data. And we, we, this, we, let's just be absolutely clear we do not sell your personal information to, to, to anyone. But if you look at the, the, the various different uses of data, I, I mentioned Gmail, we, we clearly handle a vast amount of emails. Um, we have a big responsibility to keep that email safe. But that's because users want us to, to, to handle it for them. Uh, look at the, the, the data crunching that goes on in something like Google Translate or, or Voice Search. Again, handling huge amounts of, of data. But it's not your personal information, and we don't intend to use it against or ho- ho- hoard it against you uh, and, and, uh, and somehow do something sinister with it. What we use the data for is to provide ever better services. So if you look at something like Google Now, which is really uh, assist suggests bringing you search without having to do the, the searching yourself. If I, if I looked on my phone now, and uh, the information that it's giving me about being here in, in Shoreditch, it will say, we know you're in Shoreditch. Uh, you're you're uh, 30 minutes from home. Here's a, here's a bus that you might want to get to, to go home. Here's an, a, an interesting restaurant or bar nearby. That is useful information for the user. It, it, of course, handles data, and it, it handles your location data, but because that's useful
4: to you, if you don't want that, uh, that data to, to be handled, you can opt out of it. Fr- Frank just wants to pick you up on something. <laughs> well, I, I want to use an example directly from Facebook, but I think it's applicable to all Internet giants, which is to say... The Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. had a settlement with Facebook a few years ago where they documented at least a few instances of the direct lying to their customers about future intended uses of data. And I think the talk is cheap. The problem is that where are the enforceable legal promises that, for example, your question is such a good one, we will never see sales to third parties of this data. We'll never see, say, sensitive health profiles going out beyond the walls of the company. Before we have those enforceable promises of responsible data use, I would not trust what's going on at the very largest firms. Right, a question up here in the gallery.
3: Hello. Um, Chris Kaincher from Springwise.com and Innovation Magazine. Given that uh, the internet now gives us the opportunity to research companies and their supply chains, we now have apps which allow us to scan barcodes and see the supply chains of those companies. Isn't that actually allowing us to expose the evil mega corporations in a way that's actually unprecedented and, and if we still buy into those corporations isn't that our fault? So the internet is giving us the opportunity to overthrow it, if, if we still buy into it, that's our decision
2: This is a question for Andrew, I take it yep.
3: Andrew and Frank anyway Again, I think your question misunderstands the internet and us, you're presenting us as if we're separate from the internet the internet's just a reflection of who we are And I think the the debate we're having is, can the Internet bring out our best qualities, our most noble qualities? Can the Internet make us utopian in the sense that we believe that human nature can be reformed and improved? Now, what you talk about is... An ability to go after companies. That's a good thing, but technology isn't necessarily the solution to that. You know, companies are no worse or better now than they've ever been, and I think one of the problems with Internet culture is it's created a a, a culture of suspicion. Uh, John Ronson wrote a great book about this, on shame. So, if anything, I think we're going back. I think, you know, this idea of the future is wrong. The thing about the futurists is that they are the most historical, they're the most nostalgic. And the culture you're actually talking about is back to the the stocks and barrels of the 18th century, where we're perpetually shaming companies and individuals, destroying their careers, and then moving on to the next thing. Right, there's a lady down here in the second row.
4: Hello, hello. Hi, I'm Sophia, and I'm from a social news magazine called Blasting News. My question is to the gentleman on the right side of Jeremy. So since uh, we've been talking about communism and capitalism so much, I'm going to quote Lenin. What is to be done? If we are in this um, dystopian um, society right now, what's supposed to be done and by whom? Is it companies, governments, consumers? And what are we supposed to do? Well, I... uh... I have written a, a lot of articles over the past decade in my book, The Black Box Society, tries to set forward a policy agenda. I think the most important thing right now is being sure that the regulators start treating the largest internet firms the way that we treat the telecoms, the railroads, the large utilities, the electric firms. They have so much power over our economy, they need to be treated as having that power. But as long as we're bought into this utopian rhetoric that there could always be competition, there could always be someone to knock them off, we'll never get to that point.
2: Right, we better crack on. Um... We can hear closing s- statements, I think, and then we'll have, and we'll have another... Uh, we'll revisit the vote. Uh, okay. And we'll see if any of this has been... And I'm going uh, first, is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I was just going to end with what, one little quote. You know, I, I enjoyed Andrew's book a, a lot, and, and there's a passage quite early on where he kind of lists the good things of the internet and then he sort of picks up on his theme and uh, 250 pages later he, he, he winds up. And it really reminded me... <laughs> Um, of, um, of that old sketch that, uh, that Monty Python did in, in the life of, of Brian. And I, just, I looked it up earlier, and I'm going to read it to you as my final thought. Reg, all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the freshwater system, the public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? So I... And you thought, what have the internet ever done for us?
4: Right, Frank. So, I I guess my bottom line here would be, I think voting for this motion is an opportunity for you to express your discontent. If you're fine with all the way that, you know, Google gets rid of Reader, uh, you're fine with your internet service provider, you're fine with Facebook constantly changing the privacy settings, you're fine with all those things and the status quo, sure, vote against the motion. But if you want to show some resistance and some idea that things could be better, I think vote with us and also vote with the idea that it's not the internet, it's not some large companies in Silicon Valley, it's not these isolated individuals at the top of firms that have brought us all these wonderful things, it's people. It's people that the internet has to serve and by challenging it, by calling it out as a failed utopia, you're empowering the people that right now it's keeping down. Beth, would you like to make a closing comment?
0: I would be delighted. And for this, I'm not going to invoke Life of Brian. I'm going to invoke a friend of many of the people in the room, Rufus Pollack, uh, who runs an organization here in London called Open Knowledge, a wonderful group. And Rufus, what he does is he talks about Gutenberg, Gutenberg, who created the printing press, as we all know, which could have only been used to print more Latin Bibles and further empower the priests to monopolize the word of God. But at the same time as Gutenberg, there was another guy by the name of William Tyndale, who was born here in England in 1494, and he did something different. What did he do? He used the printing press to translate the Bible into English and to put it in the hands of the everyman. He used the printing press to open up access to power and democratize access to knowledge. For upsetting the apple cart of power, of course, he was burned at the stake. But the point is, is that its technology by itself is not theology. The real utopia to which we must aspire and the reason we must vote against this proposition is the openness and innovation that the new technology makes possible. It's not a failed attempt to create the perfect society, but a very successful attempt to give an existing society the tools to make itself better.
2: Thank you.
3: Uh, And Andrew, you, you get the last word in support of the motion. Thank you. Um, I don't agree that the Internet is open. I actually think that the more we look at it, the more opaque it becomes. The large companies are actually very hard to figure out. We have this huge dark web. And the more companies, even companies like Wikipedia, talk about openness, the more opaque they become. But I think there's a bigger issue here in terms of this debate. We are arguing about whether technology makes us better. The historical analogy, if we go back to the Industrial Revolution is actually Marx. Marx was the utopian, the key utopian philosophy that came out of the Industrial Revolution. He thought technology would make us better, and communism, I think, or the experience of communism proved he was wrong. We are not arguing that the Internet is a failure. The Internet is a mixture of failure and success. As Frank has articulated, I think, brilliantly, it needs to be reformed. We need regulation. We need change. We need self-regulation and at the same time we can celebrate it, it's a good thing. So the issue when you vote is not whether you think the internet is good or bad. If we were voting on that I would agree with you, the internet overall I think is better than worse. We are arguing about whether the internet has created a utopia, whether it's created an ideal place whether it's reformed us, made us better people, and created, done away with all the things we hate, the structures of power, discrimination, unfairness, injustice. I don't believe it has, and I think at the moment, unfortunately, it's compounding some of the deepest problems in society. That's why the Internet, at the moment at least, is a failed utopia. Andrew, thank you.
2: Um, right. Um, we don't have time for a precise vote. I'll take a rough show of hands, and you guys are quite free to dissent from my reading, reading of it. First of all, is there anyone who is still a don't know on this issue?
3: Transparency. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so there are no don't knows. Wow. So who uh-huh. believes, having heard what our speakers have had to say, that it is a failed utopia? Oh, that's a distinct increase. Are we? <laughs> It was about two men and a people and a dog previously. (laughs) The dog's made its mind up. Right, and who who disagrees with the motion and believes the internet is not a failed utopia? I would say there's still a majority there, wouldn't you? I think so. Yes, you would. I would say there was still a majority believing it's not a failed utopia, but there has been a significant increase in the number of people who think it is a failed utopia, of which, in conclusive note... I think we can finish. Thank you all very much for coming.
1: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencequar.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.